Hello and welcome to the What the Flick podcast. It is a truly magical day here. It's a Christmas miracle. It is a Christmas miracle because the four of us are all in the same room at the same time for the first time in like six months. I'm not even exaggerating. No, it's true. The day What the Flick was canceled, we weren't all there. Yeah, I heard about it uh, at O'Hare Airport. (laughs) I texted you and told you. Anyway, I'm Christy. I'm Alonzo. Your attention, please. (laughs) The What the Flick show on the Young Turks Network has been canceled. (laughs) I repeat. (laughs) That's Ben. Um, So we're all here. We've got a ton of movies to talk about. We are deep in the thick of December and award season and everything that that brings. The cornucopia of blockbusters and comic book movies and musicals and awards contenders and crap. Well, yes. In a nutshell, there it is. It's all there. There were some things that were, I think, intended to be uh, awards contenders and turned out to be crap. Perhaps may not be, after all. Anyway, Ben, we're really happy to see you. Yeah, it's really good to be here. It's good to see you guys. Welcome. Thank you all for schlepping to my dining room table at 8.30 in the morning on always, Friday. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Um, so let's start with a movie that is surprisingly great. Like, I had no idea how great this was going to be, and that is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Matt. Yes. Uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is... Uh, Kind of a mashup of a bunch of different Spider-Man stories. So the movie starts out with uh, the Spider-Man we know and love, who has been bitten by a spider and protects the city. And then uh, he ends up, uh, well, I won't spoil it, but we get a new younger Spider-Man, a kid named Miles Morales, who those people who have followed the ultimate Spider-Man story uh, know that Miles Morales is a younger uh, kid that kind of takes over the mantle of Spider-Man. Uh, but then it turns out there's a whole bunch of other Spider-Men from different universes and Spider-People that come in to help kind of save the universe. Uh, this is loosely based on the Spider-Verse storyline that happened a few, uh, like about two years ago in the comics. Uh, and this turns out to be probably very likely the best Spider-Man movie that we've seen so far. It's animated. It's gorgeous. It's really fun. Uh, it's, it's a great story. It doesn't, it doesn't waste too much time on an origin story. In fact, starts to riff on the origin stories, Mm. which is great. Uh, I think this movie is terrific and I found it emotional and absolutely stay through the very, 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 very end. Uh, it's, this movie's awesome. I knew nothing about any of these characters, but I brought, I found only Tinny. Why is that? That's better. Um, I brought Nick with me and he knew of all of them because Various incarnations of this character exist in, like, Lego Marvel superheroes and Mm. um, Ultimate Spider-Man on Netflix, whatever the animated show is. So he was all excited, like, ooh, it's Spider-Noir, ooh, it's Peter Parker. He knew them all. That Ultimate storyline did get covered on the the Ultimate Spider-Man cartoon. And, yeah, you referenced some of these characters that... Some of them have been around for a while. Some of them are really new. Uh, you know, Peter Porker, this spectacular spider ham, super old school <laughs> I know. kind of riff on Spider-Man. Who knew, who knew he was canonical? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, John Mulaney uh, does the voice of that one. Uh, Nick Cage does uh, Spider does the Spider Noir, Spider Noir, which is hilarious yeah. because he's talking like. You know, you got to give him two fists, see? And, and, it's, <laughs> and yeah. he's in black and white. He's in black and white. Everything he sees is in black and white. There's a comment about, like, 
hey, where's that wind coming from? Well, it comes where for I where I come from. Yeah. Can, can we can we just say that like Nicolas Cage was in both was in this and Teen Titans Go to the Movies this year as Superman uh, as Superman and it's clearly relishing. Oh yeah, finally getting a superhero movie after the Tim Burton Superman died. No, it's incredible and it's it's a great voice cast. So Shamik Moore, who is the star of Dope, is mm-hmm. Miles Morales. Um, Mahershala Ali is the uncle he looks up to. Brian Tyler Henry, Henry is his father. Um, Haley Steinfeld is Gwen Stacy. It's just this incredible voice. Lily right. Tomlin is Lily Tomlin is Aunt May. It's, it's an get, amazing um, cast. Uh, as the... Oh, and Leah Schreiber is Kingpin. Yeah. Leah Schreiber does a great Kingpin. We have, you know, so what happens in this movie is as the universes start to cross and other Spider-Man get sucked into this particular reality, we get an older kind of over the slightly over the hill. Or he's our that. age. He's, He's a middle age. He's a loose player. Yeah, Peter Parker, uh, voiced by Jake Johnson. Jake Johnson. Who is great. Did you catch that the original, the very first one we get, is voiced by Chris Pine? Chris Pine. Yes. Um, it's an amazing cast. It's, it's a great cast. Uh, one of the things that I really love about this movie, I mean, visually, it's fascinating. Like they, they do a lot of really cool stuff with focus and with sort of the the blur of movement that I haven't really seen in a lot of American animated films. Um, so it's it's really cool to look at. And and it's funny, I think the one negative review in Rotten Tomatoes was a critic who thought, eh, it's out of focus, I can't understand. Like, that's you know. the point. Exactly. <laughs> um, but I also, you know, I, I, it, it's funny because for years now, like every, going back to the 60s, comic book fans have sort of understood the idea of these like various parallel universes and how like there's you know the earth one flash and the earth two flash or whatever but for a long time it felt like the movie and tv adaptations were skittish about doing it because it would seem too weird or wouldn't make sense but like we've seen on the flash tv show they have gone whole hog with it you know and 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 you know you even see these sort of weird kind of crossover things with the cw shows and so now this is i think really the first movie that is sort of tackling the idea, and and usually, basically, all the the only reason these things exist is because you can only do a character for so long before you've used up all the story ideas. <laughs> so you either reboot with like, okay, now it's Miles Morales, or you know, like it, it's a different character, or it's a different you know time period, like this one's set during World War II, and that one's in the present. And so the idea that these different uh, modes of a character have to operate in a in a way in which they could actually cross paths, you know. That's that's where this sort of idea comes from. That again, the comics have embraced for a long time, but now it's, it's interesting to see that they've either been around so long, or, or we've seen so many superhero movies now that that everybody is a comics nerd, whether they want to be or not. But you know, I, I was impressed by how they pulled that off. And the film is very knowing about that. Like it's incredibly meta. It's incredibly self-referential. It's a comic book movie that knows it's a comic book movie, but it's not just that. Phil Lord is one of the writers, of course. He and and Christopher Miller with the masterminds behind the Lego movies. And so it's got a lot of that kind of breathless, cheeky, knowing humor. I mean, it takes place within panels and it plays with the physical structure of a comic book film. But also, as you say, with the origin stories over and over again. And then there's just stuff in the background that's so yeah. beautiful and so funny. You cannot catch it all the first time yeah. around. You've got to go see it again. And it's just, it's thrilling, but it's not just superficially thrilling and cheeky. It's like, it's got surprising, dramatic underpinning to Gravitons? it. A gravitas drink. And it's earned. Uh, drink. Uh, by the way, I, Lord and Miller are sort of getting a lot of the shorthand credit here, but I want to shout out the, the directors are Bob Parachetti, Peter yeah. Ramsey, and Rodney Rothman. And this movie has won the best animated feature uh, 
from New York Film Critics Circle and LA Film Critics Association. So like this is this is some serious stuff. Yeah, it's it's trippy. Like it's it's great for kids because it's colorful and lively and fun, but it's also like a really wonderfully dreamy, trippy quality to it. And even at the end, the big climax at the end is remains visually coherent in a way that not a lot of, of right. superhero yeah. movies do, either live action or animated. And you can't believe where they're going with the images and the dimensions and the characters, but it all seems to make sense by that. Yeah, point. it's kind of like what Doctor Strange does yes. with its visuals. I will say, if I have one kind of caveat in this movie, I thought that the the big bad fight at the end with Kingpin goes on a bit long. Um, okay. I thought there was... <laughs> I, could have used, I could have lived with less of that. But that's a minor quibble. Beyond that, I really love this movie. I think it's super exciting. And yeah, I think it, it, is, it is crafted in a way that, yeah, kids will like it, adults will like it, Comics fans will like it. Non-comics fans will like it. Uh, it, it, it. It does a good enough job of sort of holding your hand through this crazy universe to understand what's going on. But if you go in knowing it, there will be little things that you'll get out of it. And I think one of the best Stan Lee cameos. It, yeah, it's lovely. And, uh, yeah, there's, it's, it's trippy, but it's also got this really cool, like, hyper-realism at times, too. Like, Miles will jump up in the air and touch a street sign, and it's like an actual part of town in Brooklyn where that would be. And like the lettering on the street sign is exactly what right. lettering looks like on street signs in New York. And so, but then you get Spider Ham. <laughs> yeah, oh I had no idea that Spider Ham existed. Like beyond Homer Simpson putting a pig on the ceiling in the Simpsons <laughs> movie, that's a different character. I had no idea. And John Mulaney is a perfect choice. And there's a cool little. Did you guys catch the in joke with John Mulaney? In one, one of the billboards in the background in Times Square? No. no. Should I tell you? Sure. Uh, There's a oh, hello. Oh, I did joke. get that. I did <laughs> catch that, yes. Yeah, there, there's one, it's breathless, but like one of the many billboards in Times Square is a, a takeoff on John Mulaney and Nick Kroll's show, Oh, Hello. Uh, oh, hello. So, anyway, I loved it. too much tuna. Yes. You got too much tuna. So, um, I'm saying 9.5. I loved it. Uh, I'm doing it at 9.7. It's almost perfect. Uh, 9.2. Big fan. Okay, you said 9.8 format. So oh, now, 9.8. Okay, sure. so 9.5 is our, our number. It's at 98% on the tomato meter. I cannot imagine who... I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> but Ben, even, even you would like it, though. No, no, it sounds like yeah. I would like it. I like, apparently, though, according to you, I have to see it twice, so... You do, but, but you're I don't know whether if you're marketing the movie, does your... Uh, do they pull your blurb from that? Like, do they want... To have a movie, that, or do they think that saying that on the blurb that I, you got to see it twice is just going to make people go, I don't have time for twice. Exactly. Like, <laughs> must have, that, that was like why Clue bombed in theaters. Like, I got to see this three times? <laughs> yes. It's a choose your own adventure book. So our number is a 9.5. Please go see it. It is so great. Even if you think you don't like comic book movies, if you mm. think you're sick of Spider-Man, this is totally fresh and new. And let's move on to another film that is absolutely gorgeous that you must see in a theater, and that is the latest from Barry Jenkins. It is If Beale Street Could Talk. Ben. Yeah, If Beale Street Could Talk is uh, uh, is the most romantic uh, condemnation of the bail system, I think, in cinema history. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, this, is a, this is a romance based on uh, James Baldwin's uh, book. Um uh, about uh, a young couple. She's 19, he's 22, uh, and he has been charged with a crime that uh, it appears he didn't commit. We're never, of course, entirely sure, but, uh, uh, and it's about her, her and her family's quest uh, told in impressive, nonlinear fashion to uh, uh, get him uh, out of jail 
uh, uh, get him released, uh, also while telling the story of their beautiful romance uh, together. The courtship. Yeah. Their courtship, yeah. Yeah, I, um, I did my top ten list this week, and I tied this one with The Hate You Give. Um, wow. Because they're both films about you know the police and the justice system and how it fails you know black Americans, uh, but they're they're told in such different ways. I mean, like the hate you give is a gut punch, and this movie is lyrical and soulful and haunting, uh, but swoony. It, it's, yeah, exactly, but no less tragic for it. You know, um, but yeah, it, it shot so impeccably in terms of capturing the period detail and. Finding this sort of like you know, uh, like this kind of grace in these you know kind of you know inner city locations. Um, you know the performances I think are, are really great. You know the leads in particular, but also like um, you know Regina King obviously and Coleman Domingo as the as Kiki Lane's parents. Um, you know I, I, there's a there's a great scene involving uh, Anjanu Ellis. As, as as the guy's mother, um, and yeah, that's a great. That scene is stunning. I mean, that scene is just. You have no that idea. Scene will get you so angry. But <laughs> yeah. then there's a really cool scene with Brian Tyree Henry. Oh, and Tiona, sorry, Tiona Paris, who plays right. the sister, who's great too. Yeah, it is. It is so incredibly beautiful and so simultaneously smoldering and yet like pinpoint precise in terms of the use of color, in terms of the way. That, and again, Greg Jenkins is working with his Moonlight cinematographer, James Laxon, here. And he will find the same shade of green in an awning, in an umbrella, in a dress. And those things will tie together in a way that makes this film, which takes place in a recognizable New York, feel dreamlike and feel otherworldly. It's, yeah. it's, there's a lot of Wong Kar Wai in this film. Right. Well, that's, a, that's one of his sort of noted... Always, you know, yeah. yeah. But, but, very much, but not in a way that feels like shameless theft. It's, right. it's just like a beautiful, wonderful homage that he has taken and made his own within this setting. There's a, there's a lot... You know, I don't note this a lot in movies, but there are a lot of shots in this where you think, okay, if you just froze this here, mm-hmm. like that's a painting that mm-hmm. would hang in someone's home and people would say, that's really quite beautiful. <laughs> um, I'm thinking about the shot of her uh, pregnant coming back to the uh, sort of the basement apartment and sitting in it alone. Mm. And we don't even quite know exactly when, right? When in this time frame this is. but it, And then it just slowly pulls back and pulls back until you see this sort of barren, empty apartment. I don't know. It's just, it was this beautiful, beautiful shot that sort of told her story perfectly. Yeah, he does a lot really well, wordlessly, here. Um, there's also a great shot of Regina King when she is trying to do something really difficult to help oh, right. exonerate mm-hmm. Fonny and Stefan James. The wig scene? The wig scene. Mm-hmm. Okay, so before even we see her looking at us as if we were her mirror, the camera really subtly and intuitively follows her as she's getting her things together in the in the bedroom with, with her luggage, with her wig, and we're just, we're with her. And it's really intimate and really unobtrusive. And then the, what she does with the wig, like, I'm looking at that. Um, what she does with the wig says so much yeah. without saying a word as far as, like, her mindset and what the wig represents in terms of who she knows she needs to be in that moment and the pressure of that. Yes. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. That, that is definitely a, a moment that people are going to talk about. Like, it's the kind of thing that, that film students will look at mm-hmm. as a way to convey so much information from their dialogue. Barry Jenkins is not 
in a hurry. <laughs> and uh, I mean, this felt, uh, you know, uh, before I started at TCM, comparisons I couldn't have made. But this, you know, I mean, he, that in many ways, this feels, and this is supposed to be a compliment, for, uh, it, but it feels uh, European, or at least foreign, you know. Sure. It feels oh, very much so. More, more than European, because it felt, it feels like Ozu, yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say, and Bergman a little bit too. I mean, he's just, it doesn't. Like he is at his own pace, and it's not long. Some of the, you know, some some of those guys make movies that are, you know, three hundred minutes long, and this is just two hours. But, but still, it, it is not in any hurry. But it would be a, it would be wrong, I think, to say that it's slow. It's um, yeah, it is, it's it, it is at its at its it is it moves at its own pace, yeah. and its own pace and, is and, quite fine. And again, it's also that thing where you can tell where a filmmaker is trusting the audience to pay attention. Yeah. And to look at what they're being shown and that everything means something. Right. And the pace is, is a huge part of the storytelling. It's a part of the mood. It's a part of making us feel like we're a part of their lives. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I loved it. But one thing that I think is so unfortunate is is the comparisons it keeps drawing to Moonlight. Right. Moonlight is its own thing. Yeah. Beale Street is its own thing. And Beale Street is different. And it is slower, as you say, Ben. And it is its own kind of... World, and I, I feel like people look at Seal Street like, oh, that's not as good because it's different and it's, yeah. it's trying to achieve different and, things. You know, for that matter, like if you've never seen Medicine for Melancholy, which is Barry Jenkins' first film that people often forget existed before Moonlight, go back and watch it. It's gorgeous. Also shot by James Laxton in black and white. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a terrific movie. This guy, yeah, it, these are these are different films, and he has different modes of telling them, but they each succeed in their own way. We need, as a society, to figure out a different way of figuring out winners and losers and comparing yeah. mm-hmm. previous efforts. You know, like, I mean, you can, and, and that's obviously certainly true. It, it seems most true. It certainly is applying here to Barry Jenkins in comparisons to Moonlight. But it's true with almost every musician who's come out with an album that isn't as good as the previous album, but still is probably great, right? You know, or or and, or isn't as good to some people because those these movies, like music, they impact people emotionally in a different way. Well, you know, nobody who talked about whether or not First Man was similar to La La Land, you know. That's like, right, right, because it was another, another, right. Because, yeah, because they're so different. But like this, this is different things. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, I think it's true. But I mean, nobody compared them in a in a serious, uh, uh, critical way. But moviegoers did. Like, oh, I liked La La Land. It was fun. This was so slow, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I had a couple of friends who really didn't like First Man, which baffled me. But again, it was it was it was it, First Man also moved at its moved at its own pace. But it's also true for sports. And I, I'm not trying to, but you know that we. If you don't win the Super Bowl, there's something wrong with you. Like you know, right. you, there, there can be achievement that is uh, uh, obviously this is true, but there can be achievement which is worthy of great praise, but is not as good as a previous achievement. <laughs> you know, nobody sure. um, was celebrating the Buffalo Bills for losing. Right, the they got to four straight Super. The Buffalo Bills are the perfect. Is it Marv Levy was one of the great coaches of all time. He got to four Super Bowls. He lost them all. It's not actually that it, important. It, it would be yeah. amazing if. People could see more movies like as a as like a brand X taste test, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, don't tell them going in what it's about right. or, or who is involved. Like, like obviously they'll figure out who the cast is, but you know, like I, I think it would be it, it would be really interesting to see at the end where if you 
ask people about something, you know, and they had and they, they went in completely blank and weren't compared to anything else, you know, how they would, how they would perceive it, as opposed to going in with this baggage of expectation. Yeah. I want to mention also really fast um, the score from Nicholas Patel, mm. which was our winner this past weekend at our LA Film Critics voting for yes. best music. Also contributes greatly to the sense of place and the mood and who these characters are. And it's lovely. And we, we, we honored Regina King, who also uh, was honored by New York and got a Golden Globe nomination. Not SAG, though, which made some people mad. Did she, did she not? She did not get a SAG nomination. Neither did Ethan Hawke for First Reformed. Uh, did the but the, did the movie get an overall nomination from SAG? No, I, I, I don't think it got ensemble. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm only half paying. I mean, the ensemble <laughs> cast too, but I mean, everybody was just so good in this movie. Yeah. Everybody delivered, even a couple characters. Michael Beach, great too. The, 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 the Stephen James's father. Um, but everybody delivered it. It's crazy that this cast would not be. Uh, yeah, like as soon, as soon as I saw this movie, I was immediately annoyed at the Spirit Awards for uh, giving the the ensemble award to Suspiria and not to this. But you know. oh, that doesn't make any sense. The uh, um, uh, uh, I didn't know that. Um, the uh, uh, I, you know because I've heard so much about Regina King coming in. Uh, it's a, this is ultimately a testament to to her greatness, which nobody now denies, right? No. Everybody sort of gets Regina King, one of the best working actresses, working actors out there. And, uh, but she, um, but because I knew she'd been nominated in New York and Los Angeles and the Golden Globe nomination, that it was super buzzworthy and everybody was talking about it, I thought she'd literally be in it more. Like, she created this without, you know, she, again, I just thought, I almost thought she was going to co-lead this movie, but she's definitely a supporting player. She has really two significant scenes, but she does so much with them. Yeah. Uh, like her Oscar clip could be that wig scene. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. It could also be the scene that follows the wig scene. Yeah. Right. No, it's so, uh, yeah, she does so much, so subtly. Anyway, or, the, or the family fight. Mm. Yeah. Or the, or, oh, yeah, of course. They, she said more than two. Yeah. So, uh, but, but still, I thought she'd be in it much more, but she, but you, you see this movie, and even though it's only less than two hours long, and she is not in it nearly as much as I thought. You can't help think afterwards. Well, it was great, Regina King movie. Yeah, yeah exactly. So my number is a nine. Uh, I also gave it a nine. Ben says nine point one. Okay, so, so we're a nine. We're a nine. The ninety-three percent on the tomato meter. And uh, is it just New York and LA this weekend? Is it wider? I don't know. I think it, it's just New York and LA. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, Annapurna. This is they. They kind of bobbled like Sisters Brothers and some other and, and Detroit. So I'm hoping that. They've got this in vice between now and the end of the year. I'm hoping that they uh, figure out how to distribute as well as they know how to produce. Well, I think they're having some financial problems. It's right. Going on, so. mm-hmm. Who isn't? Well, go support them by seeing this film and go see it on the biggest screen you can find with the best sound because it's gorgeous. So yes. nine, Did we say the words okay. Kiki Lane? Were they Kiki Lane, yeah. yes. All right. Um, all right, so let's move on. Ooh, let's talk about the mule. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to describe it? No, okay, so Clint Eastwood plays an elderly gentleman. Um, uh, an elderly jerk, actually. He's old. He, he's, 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 he is devoted to. Is he his, cranky in this? He is, he's a little cranky. Cantankerous. Super cranky. Not PC. He, he is devoted to his, uh, his, his, his gardening uh, business. He grows daylilies. Um, and ignores his uh, wife uh, and his uh, daughter, um, played by Diane Weist and Alice Eastwood, respectively. Uh, they do not like him because they think that he basically, you know, put business first. And we know this because the first scene that Diane Weist has, she tells somebody that he always put work first. Um, 
This is a movie where people say things just so you know that that's what's happening. And the exact opposite of Beale Street. Exactly. <laughs> so then we jump ahead a few years, and the internet has put him out of business. And he does. He says he grumbles. No. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so um, at his uh, granddaughter's, uh, one, uh, at, a, at a cocktail party for her impending nuptials, a friend of uh, a friend of one of her bridesmaids takes him aside and says, "Hey, you're an old white man with a clean driving record. I know you can make a lot of money." <laughs> it's and exactly as contrived as that sounds, by the way. It comes out of nowhere. Yeah, and so uh, before you know it, Clint is driving for the cartel, uh, shipping. Um, Coke, I guess, from um, El Paso to Chicago. And makes a nice chunk of change, helps pay for the granddaughter's wedding, and suddenly, um, you know, he's just going to do it one time. But then, like, the VFW hall has a fire in the kitchen, and they need money. And before you know it, he's doing it over and over again and getting really successful. Uh, Drug kingpin um, uh, Andy Garcia uh, thinks that he's the bee's knees. Um, But then there's a let's say, change in management, and suddenly it's like, oh, it was the fun cartel, but now it's a mean cartel. Um, Can he mend his familiar relationships? Can director Clint Eastwood give himself two separate scenes in which he has three ways with hookers? Spoiler, (laughs) yes, he can. This movie. This, this movie is propaganda for the border wall. This movie sucks. Let's just put it out there because it's all about scary Mexicans. They're all these like stereotypical shaved, shaved head, neck tatted, scary Mexicans who want to bring drugs into our country, who take advantage of vulnerable war veterans, mm. our great veterans. They can and take Clint, advantage of the greatest generation. It's the he, worst thing you can do. He's a Korean War veteran, Clint character. And this is based, based on the true story, by the way. This is yes, and uh, based on a New York Times magazine article. And beyond that, before he even begins, you know, moving the drugs across the country, Clint's character Earl is Trump's proverbial forgotten man. Mm. He's like elderly white guy in the heartland, and the economy has you know collapsed beneath him. The American dream has fallen apart for him. Right. Of course. There's nothing to be said about, you know, he looks at, he has the chance to, like, get on the web and decides, oh, no, that's, he's too good for that. So, of course, his business suffers, but that's not his fault at all. No, it's all these old man jobs. The other thing is he, this was so irritating, like, that first job, like, he just shows up and all these, you know, kind of, like, thug, gangbanger types, he's like, oh, okay, I'll just drive whatever. Right. how stupid is this? Well, that's the question. There's one moment in this movie that I actually like, the only one. One line is when Clint finally shows up at the car, at the cartel's compound and he says to Andy Garcia, man, we had to kill you in a place like this. And Andy Garcia's like, a lot of people. <laughs> that was funny. Everything else in this movie was terrible. No, but like, like the old man tropes are annoying too. Like, yes, he gets his three ways and there's a lot of like booty grinding that Clint like, oh. lingers on. Clint the director lingers on Clint the actor getting ground, ground upon. Yeah, like, so so many, and, like, like bikini girls who are barely wearing bikinis. Yeah, I mean, like, for moments, yeah. like, man, isn't this a Fast and Furious movie? Yeah. So he does a, a three-way in this movie? He's two, two of, of them. It's a six-way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, five, because he's there. <laughs> it's right, it's true. You, sub- you always got to subtract the guy. That's right. Uh, he's 88? He's 88. How angry is every 
woman in Hollywood who had to have plastic surgery because some agent told her that she wasn't attractive enough. Looking at Clint Eastwood starring in this movie, getting three ways with hookers and having his family fall over themselves to forgive him for no good reason. Looking like the Crypt Keeper. He's the director, too. And I I don't care because I'm also the guy last week who said it was good that Roger Ellis was dead. You know what we didn't need? We didn't need to see topless Clint Eastwood. Oh, God, yes. I forgot about that. Yeah. I we was we trying to block that like out of my this, mind. I mean, okay, look, we got to see it in, in you know, Every Which Way But Loose, fine. <laughs> this one? That was, that was 45 years ago. Years ago. <laughs> so here's the thing, too, beyond the fact that, like, there's not a whole lot to Clint Eastwood's character beyond being, like, cantankerous and racist and clueless. Um, he also manages to render Bradley Cooper completely charisma-free. Yeah. Like, how do you do that? It was like a visit from 2001 Bradley Cooper. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, you used to or, be terrible. I forgot, but now you're reminding me. He's the DEA agent who's on the... Yeah, no, I, saw, I, I, I saw it in the trailer, and I was like, I was like, that can't be Bradley Cooper. He, he also yeah. does that to Michael Pena, too. Nothing I love to Michael Pena. Oh, they, no, I think yeah. Pena's great, right? And then there's moments where it's like... There's that moment early on where... You think because it, you get starts to get the idea like is there an informant and, okay. and Pena says something about having five kids and then there's you know it's like oh how do you, Cooper says how do you make that work and he's like oh you just make it work and I thought oh okay well that's telling he's going to be on the tape nope. then, no there's nothing, nothing more nothing to these yeah. people so at all if we can if we can put aside the racism the misogyny and the homophobia <laughs> between Eastwood in the very first scene. Chumley calling his Mexican day laborers maricones um, to the to the uh, Filipino informant who they inform is going to be a girlfriend in prison if they don't if he doesn't cooperate with the DEA and the dykes on bikes and the dykes on bikes let's put all <laughs> let's put all of that aside this movie is boring it is very sad like, well, yeah because you get no like the movie does the movie at no point do you get any idea like this man and I'm beat, like I didn't read the New Yorker. Right? The New York Times. The New York Times. I article. did. But you watch this movie, it's like, this is the dumbest old man ever. Like, he's just happily like, oh, I'm just going to drive this shit around. I don't care. Well, I'll tell you what, the, the story actually addresses that. That increasingly, it was clear that he had dementia. Oh, interesting. Okay, they I, don't... Right. In real life. In real life, yeah. yeah, he's really frail toward the end. And also, in real life, this guy was, was making these runs for like a decade. And mm. I feel like the time period is a little compacted because it's like like 2015 and so, you, yeah. you, but like you get these overhead shots of his truck on the highway to be like second run, ninth run. It's like they well, just all the, run together after a while because there's no there's no distinguishing. Well, I will say there there that the difference between the runs is, is the only vague source of tension here because the amount of cargo increases and the stakes increase and the potential for danger increases and also his unpredictability increases, which also threatens, once, especially once his handlers are on his tail, it threatens mm-hmm. the possibility that it's all going to go violent and sideways really fast. But, you but never I never feel that danger. You never feel that danger. You never feel like there's anything deeper going on in Earl's head, right? Mm-hmm. Like, An ethical of, struggle of well, some sort. Yeah. Even, right. Like, also, you know, you start seeing, like, if this was going on for 10 years, like, you know, this, after the second run, he shows up with his brand new Lincoln Navigator, yeah. right? And then he starts pumping money into the VFW hall, and like suddenly, yeah, and no one's asking questions. 
He is behaving like the guys after the Lufthansa job. They got to wait a year to spend the money. And nobody notices. This is the first time I'm looking that he's been on camera in six years. Since Trouble with the Curve. Since Trouble with the Curve. Which he did not direct. Remember when Gran Torino was going to be his grand farewell acting? And that was like, what, eight years ago? I think that was 2008. So it was like 10 years ago. Yeah. So at the same time, though, Clint does still make these elegant, efficient films, right? Uh, you know and, what? And so technically, I feel like all that stuff is there. It's just in the service of a story that's really dull. Even his efficiency, I find a little overrated at this point. Like, he's very famous for, like, not doing a lot of takes and right. zipping through these movies. And then you get shots where, like, background people are looking at the camera. You get shot yeah. counter shots with him and Diane Weiss that don't match. Yeah, yes, so yeah. he's getting sloppy. And yeah. it's like, I would love in my lifetime to see a relatively competent female filmmaker get to crank out movies at the rate that Clint Eastwood and Woody Allen do. Yeah, he, he made two movies years. this year. Oh yeah, 15, 17 to Paris. That was this year. Yeah, so you guys, what is worse than the mule or this? Or the one 15, 17 to Paris, see. right? Ooh. That was bad because you had actual people who don't know how to act. Yeah. At least you have actors who were going to waste. Sure. Lawrence Fishburne right. in it, Taisa uh, Farmiga. Yes, yes. There's a lot of people slumming in this cast. movie. Uh, yeah, the 15, 17 Paris was just like dudes eating gelato yes. for 90 minutes until they finally get to beat up some What's terrorists. What's sure about this movie is that, you know, based on what you're talking about, how this guy had to venture, you could have done something similar to, say, The Big Short, where you're actually not necessarily making fun of a guy with dementia, but, like, it's this guy's... Like, you could start poking fun of the FBI and everybody else that this guy managed to get away with this for mm-hmm. so long when he clearly shouldn't have been. And there's... You play this so straight, but there's... And I think Eastwood's efficiency as a filmmaker, like, stripping everything out of it, like, there's nothing of interest here. Mm-hmm. You come away with this, and it's like, oh, okay, well, I guess he... Kind of finally decided to stay with his family. It took his ex-wife, you know, being on her deathbed. Okay, yeah. it's, it comes out of nowhere. Kind but, of. Yeah, and, and even then, I kind of didn't buy it because, yeah. like, well, shit, he didn't show up it, for his daughter's wedding. It was so. very too little, too late. Like, the daughter is so forgiven by the end. It's like he's he is such the hero, and it's so not earned. And, and so, basically, every every every, mo- every woman in this movie either uh, worships him unquestioningly, pulls a sour face when he's around, or is a literal whore. Like, that's, these are the choices here. Or the bikers. Or a dike on bike, but that's one scene. Okay, so I'm saying four, which I now feel like is charitable compared to our conversation. I gave it to, I reviewed it for RogerEbert.com, and I gave it a two stars out of four. Apparently, the comment section on my review is, on is a debacle. Praising you, telling saying you, what an amazing, what an amazing female film critic I am, <laughs> oh, and, and there's no need for me to go back into the kitchen and make them a sandwich <laughs> so, or anything. So you appreciate this because <laughs> somebody else was getting bad. Somebody else was getting a bunch of Katie, Katie Walsh. Walsh. Oh, Katie Walsh. Yeah, somebody tweeted in response to her DC stands are better than, <laughs> than Clint stands. Anyway, so I'm saying four, you guys. 3.8. Uh, I can give it a three because I'm a dude. No one's going to come after All right, so I'm going to move for 3.6. It's at 64%. It's funny, it was around the high 80s for a while because a lot of critics are being really kind to it, I feel like, and they are older white men. Well, I, first of all, I mean, in, in defense of older white men. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I, because, I, and I obviously haven't seen this movie, but, uh, you know, there is a soft spot uh, for Clint Eastwood, which all of us have had at one time or another, I think. 
Okay, well, not you, all right. But uh, many people have had, because... Uh, many people have had. No, uh, man because has had. no, and for no other reason than his movies made us happy in men- for a long time, right? And, and, and then he morphed into this talented uh, director who told, I thought, you know, I love Gran Torino. I mean, and, uh, yeah, I loved it. Couldn't love it more. I mean, and I... And I uh, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm forgiven. I think that's it. It's one of the great, well, great best modern western ever. Letters from Iwo Jima. That, 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 that's I like the. Uh, what was the? Uh, <laughs> that was the second one, right? Yeah. 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 The, the Japanese. Yes. Yeah, that was great. Was the yeah, it was not as good. Um, so, uh, so uh, you know, and normally, if you have an 88 year old making a competent movie, yeah, you you you're tolerant of it's that more, more than you would. You can still drive. Right, that's right, that's right. You know, it, I mean, it is the standing ovation for age, right? I mean, he... For just showing up. Right, for just showing up. So so that's why I'm defending that it's not necessarily that they're just because they're old white men. They Like, people who love movies, many of whom have this... Like, I, want, I liked Sully, so I'd love it if he made one movie that was just like that, not great, but pretty good, and then... And could go there, out there, with that. I will not name this critic, but uh, a critic I know who is generally a tough customer and very demanding has such a blind spot where he's with his concern. This critic was even nice to Jersey Boys. I know yeah. who you're talking and about. And that movie was a debacle. <laughs> the, um, I know who you're talking about. You know, he was, but some of it happened. I was at the Governor's Awards and Lalo Shiprin got a Governor's Award, mm. right? Who did the music for Dirty Harry and most famously and his greatest contribution to the world is the theme for Mission Impossible. Of course. Um, and Clint gave him the award. And it was tough. I mean, Clint really stole his thunder and oh. did little bits that hadn't been rehearsed that kind of confused a guy whose English is his second language and was so, but he was so charming and the crap, you know. And and many people like were you know there was like a split in the audience. It was uh, you know it was like uh, you know it was like Elia uh, 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 Kazan, right? You know, like, <laughs> like there were people who were like, "Well, I'm going to applaud this because it's Clint," and others who were like, "Jesus, what the hell is? What is he doing? Why is he? Why is he stealing this moment? Just get up there, movie. talk about his value, and give me a award." Yeah, look, there's moments in this movie where there is you see the like man, Clint can still be charming. No, like he can still be the charming old guy, and he had, point. and he had, and in that, and in his, and in his, and in his convoluted, I'm not going to use a prompter. I'm going to do my own thing here. Uh, there was one great Clint line in it that brought the house down. There was one moment, but I don't think it was worth it to confuse the honoree. Uh, well, while we're on the subject, I was going to say, these would give our scores on this. Yeah, yeah. we did. Okay, so uh, go ahead. I'm going to do it. Go ahead. Sandra Locke died this week. Yeah. No, she died in November. Really? She died in, like, November 4th. Oh, wow. And it just now came out. That's crazy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the story sort of broke the day we're taping this. All right. Uh-huh. Sandra Locke died six weeks ago, <laughs> and we're now just hearing about it. But Blackballing that news, too? Who knows? But, you know, she was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actress for her very first film, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. She met Clint Eastwood on High Plains? Outlaw Josie Wells. Oh, Outlaw Josie Wells. And um, they entered into a relationship. She worked a Alongside him in many films, including The Gauntlet and Bronco Billy. And um, when they split, apparently it was acrimonious. acrimonious. Like, literally, she went home to their house in Bel Air and he had changed the locks and put all of her stuff in boxes. She was directing a movie. Yeah, well, she was. Yeah, she directed Impulse for Warner Brothers. She had made it was the second film that she had directed for them. Part of, and she said that all the work dried up because, like, you know, she said basically in an industry town, the friends of Clint were not going to be the friends of her anymore. And part of her settlement in, in her palimony settlement with 
Eastwood was getting this deal at Warner Brothers where she was supposed to be able to like, you know, develop scripts and direct them. The studio turned down every single thing she brought to them. She realized that the whole thing was a sham, that Eastwood was never going to let her get a film made, so she sued. Sued again, right. Yeah, she, right, right. she sued the studio again, and they settled with her. So it's like... Eleven of the twelve jurors were going to vote with her. They, they, they settled after it went to the jury. They yeah. knew they were going to lose. So it was like this thing of, you know, she was basically Me Too before that was, it was called Me Too. And, you know, he treated her very, very shabbily. And, you know, it, it is it is sad that we, you know, I, I have not seen Rap Boy or Impulse, but I've heard good things about them. And apparently, you know, she was a the promising filmmaker who was silenced by this powerful guy. Well, she's great in The Heart is the Lonely on her. Yeah. Her debut was great. And she, uh, you know, <laughs> the vets of the, uh, Alonzo sent us all an email and uh, about this, with this, so people should look this up. It was a great Washington Post story from, I think, 1997. Yeah, Sharon Waxman interviewed her when, when Locke's book came out. Um, and, uh, but one of the little items in that story is that she was once showering and he left for a dinner party they were both invited <laughs> to while she was showering. Yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, so he, he comes off as uh, somewhat monstrous, and, you know, obviously that's her side of the story. I'm sure they both have their tales to tell. But, you know, he does have kind of a history of these relationships in his wake, uh, you know, Francis Fisher and Dina Ruiz, and, you know, I, I, I don't know what his deal is, but he definitely did not do right by Sandra Locke, and um, now she is no longer with us, so I just wanted to acknowledge that fact. Uh, yes. Consider it acknowledged. Okay. Thank you. Yes. Go uh, go go back and read this Washington Post story, this interview with Sharon Waxman. It's very interesting about her book, which is called The Good, the Bad, and the Very Ugly. Oh, is it? Okay. Her, her mem- yes, Thunder Lux memoir from 1997 hmm. when this came out. Yes, and yeah, Clint had had the whole second life with the flight attendant who oh. is Scott Eastwood's mom. Right. Yes. Scott yeah, and Katie. Yeah, he had this whole other relationship in Carmel with a woman who had two kids with them. After making Sandra Locke have two abortions, right. she says because he didn't want to have kids mm-hmm. and. And also, he, she accused him of wiretapping her, which later in a deposition he admitted that he had. I remember how mad Clint got that people were making a table at yeah, that restaurant that he was in trouble for not having a wheelchair accessible ramp, and that's why he ran for mayor of Carmel. Hot breath in Carmel, yeah. yes. Like, oh, I have to pay money to people with wheelchairs in here? <laughs> Anyway, so uh, yeah, so thank you for bringing that up. Um, interesting. But I don't know why this news broke just yesterday. You know, she died six weeks ago, um, but I didn't realize that she was until the end married to her gay best friend. Yes, since like 1967. Yes, and so they remained married. And uh, I guess he, Clint, according to this Sharon Waxman story, according to the memoir, that Clint bought the condo on Crescent Heights mm. here in West Hollywood where he lived, mm. where the husband lived. So he's still among us. So anyway, so let's move on. Um, let's talk about Once Upon a Deadpool. Sure. Sound good? It's Christmas. Sure. Why not? So Alonzo, tell us what this bizarre cross-section of <laughs> stuff is. So, okay. Once Upon a Deadpool is basically Deadpool 2, but edited for a PG-13 rating. And to sort of, I guess, maybe paper over some segments that had to be cut uh, to get that rating, um, we have these interstitials where Deadpool is reading the film as a story to Fred Savage in a replica of the bedroom from The Princess Bride, but it's adult Fred Savage and he is tied to the bed until the story is finished. 
Um, and it's, you know, the, the interstitials are funny, and, and, and Savage sort of gets to be a stand-in for the audience, where he gets to point out that Vanessa gets fridged in this movie, and he points out that the backstory for Cable is far more interesting in the comics than in this movie. But then beyond that, you're just kind of stuck watching Deadpool 2 again. And I, I think one of, the, one of the things that sort of popped out for me was that the ratings board is so messed up when it comes to violence versus sex. Because Deadpool 2 is really violent, and this cut is still pretty dang violent. There's just no blood. Yeah, for PG-13, it's like, you know, it, 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 there's a, you know, people can stab in the neck and stuff. They just get yeah, nothing spurts out is the only difference. Right. And real quick, for those who never have heard us talk about it, Absolutely worth watching still because it's still relevant. This film is not yet scaling. Oh, totally. Yes, yes, it's Kirby Dick's documentary for sure. Um, there is a nice. We mentioned the Stan Lee cameo in Spider Verse. There's a. There's. A, they've digitally inserted a nice Stan Lee tribute in the in the middle of this movie. Um, and one at the end. Stay through the credits because there's more Stan Lee at the end. Yeah, which not on the print that I saw, which is so weird. I saw like a day before you, and I didn't get any of that. There's um, a whole lot of Stan Lee if you stay the through credits. the very end. Oh, okay. Well, I'll, I guess now I have to see it again, oh. again three times. This is basically a glorified DVD extra, but it is. It's in theaters for twelve days. A dollar from every ticket purchase goes to. Uh, the the nonprofit Fuck Cancer, which for the twelve days is being renamed Fudge Cancer <laughs> to honor the PG thirteen rating. Um, so it's a it's a it's a funny idea, and it's it's certainly not unprecedented that studios have tried to like figure out a way to get people to go back in the theaters. I remember they put out a PG edit of Saturday Night Fever in the seventies oh, because that, that movie became lame. such a cultural phenomenon. They wanted younger people to see it, I guess. Um, but so much of what uh, happens in the movie that makes it interesting is the R-rated stuff, not the disco dancing. Do you guys remember when we were kids they were selling alien toys? Oh, yeah, yeah, from Mego. Like an alien action figure? It's like, that's a fun movie. You know. Go. Well, I thought, you know, PG-13 has done, I think, grave damage to the quality of our pictures. Uh, so if this is the price to pay 12 days with some money going to charity for a movie I loved, Deadpool 2, and thought was hilarious, that, that okay, if they're going to recut this and this is and this enables the, the real cut to be R-rated, I can, I can live with that. Sure, yeah. Also, Deadpool 2 is the kind of movie, like the original Deadpool, where so many of the jokes fly so fast and furious, and, so, and Ryan Reynolds is so deadpan. That you cannot catch it all. That's true. The first time, Seeing a so second it's nice time to see it yeah. a second time. And the whole device with him and Fred Savage is always funny. Yes, and they come back to it like just at I the thought, right time every time. I thought the know? promos, were, the trailers with Fred Savage. I didn't realize it was in the movie. I thought the trailers were sensational. Yeah, I was like, all right, look at this. They're they found something. This is working. It's funny. They're funny together. Fred Savage is. Very funny. He's really he funny. Is. He was it, great. Real quick, I'm sorry. Yeah. In that Fox show, oh the the with uh, the, with, with Rob Lowe. The, with Rob Lowe Not and the then Tim Oliphant, the... right? But it was ba- it was it was ba- <laughs> it was a show where Rob Lowe had been the star of like Law and Order right. and left the show and was now trying to be a TV a, a real life and then lawyer. became a real life lawyer. Tried to advise exactly. his brother, exactly. was his brother was his brother's lawyer, and it was uh, they canceled it after 13 episodes or something. But it was it was extremely funny. funny. Yeah. And I was fun. gonna say, and it's it's it perfect that and Bill Devane played the dad. I think. Oh yeah, but it's perfect that you know that those that little structural device is as meta as Deadpool itself is. Like it's all of a piece. It's not jarring to come back to the Fred Savage segments. Right. It makes total sense, and he's having a good time making fun of his own career and his you know his place in pop culture history. 
It's really funny. He's yeah. funny. He's and a so funny dude. He is. I, I brought Chris with me to the screening because he was around and he wanted to come along with me. And he had never seen the grinder. There you go. Grinder. It's really good. He'd never seen either Deadpool movie. He'd oh, wow. never seen any Marvel movie. Oh my! So like, this is or, your, this, this is your, this is Chris. This is your husband? This is my husband, Chris? Yes, he's God bless him. I know, right? Yeah. All that space in his brain yeah. that we don't <laughs> have anymore, right? It is full of sports. So, um, good. He never seen it, and so a lot of it like kind of went over his head. But he still he laughed. He liked Ryan Reynolds. He laughed quite a bit at the Fred Savage stuff. But I don't know how accessible this is if you don't know this world, right? Well, the funny thing also... I don't know the world, so I didn't... didn't, And I love both that. The the funny thing about this release, and I talked about it in my review on The Wrap, which is like, you know, the idea of... Like, when they did a PG Saturday Night Fever reissue, that was literally to try and get younger people in the theater. Is there anything standing between an R-rated movie and a determined 11-year-old these days? I mean, with Netflix and streaming and, you know... HBO, like it just seems like I mean, it, it seems almost quaint the idea that you would need to. I think that was. I, I fear that what you're saying was true ten years ago, maybe even five years ago. But now I feel like if we found out that an 11 year old got into an R-rated movie, the manager of the theater would get fired. <laughs> you know, as opposed to saying, <laughs> "Tighten this. Don't let that. Don't do that again." You know, we yeah. all saw R-rated movies we shouldn't have seen when we were kids, and we right. turned out totally fine. It, wow. My parents were pretty strict about that. Really? Actually. Yeah. I mean, I had a couple early on where it was either like they couldn't get a sitter or like Rocky was sold out and we yeah. saw Network instead. But for the most <laughs> part, like I had to wait. I was in trouble because my mom, the first R-rated movie I'd seen in theaters that my mom didn't know about was That Was Then, This Is Now. Ooh. I got in trouble because I'd left a ticket in my pants pocket. <laughs> uh, but then she made us, like she thought it was important I saw um, Breakfast Club. Mm-hmm. Though that was rated R. She's yeah. like, yeah, this is rated R, but you're going to watch it. Well, but the know. sex, the sex, Alonzo, I mean, the sex violence point, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an outrage that we have this problem in this country, yeah. right? That we can't see a man's penis, right? But we can show somebody slowly bleed out after being shot in the neck, right. asking for their mother, and then dying in front of us. Like, yeah. that's fine. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that is warped and crazy and is messing up our children, just, you know, for the record. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm, I'm making sure my kid sees R-rated movies, so I'm helping promote you're the good, culture. You are a good mom. You, you took Thank your you. kid to Dunkirk. Yeah, I did. That's PG-13, but my kid oh, has seen okay. Caddyshack. Oh, yeah. That's R. Because you could see Lacey under all boobs. <laughs> um, anyway, so let's move on. Anyway, so so Deadpool, so I don't know why, but once upon a Deadpool was only at 51%. People think it was gimmick is lame, but Alonzo and I had a good time. Yeah, so. I, I gave it a 7.5, which is basically the score that I gave the Deadpool. Yeah, I'm saying 7, right. So 7.3 from us. Um, let's move on. Really quickly, I want to talk about, I know at least one of you guys has to leave, right? Me. Okay. You want to do Mary Poppins real fast? Sure. Okay. We're going to do an early look at Mary Poppins Returned, which comes out next Wednesday. Right. So that we get to it now... Ben, since you've seen it, you want to do Mary Poppins? Um, sure. I mean, it's Mary Poppins Returns. <laughs> I mean, it really that's 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 sort of what's happening here. Uh, Emily Blunt is uh, Mary Poppins, and she uh, returns. Uh, <laughs> like what? Twenty years? Is that what they say? No, more than that, because the Banks 30. kids were little kids, right? And now yeah, and they're, they're, like they're our in age. their thirties. No, they're not that old. They're in their Emily 30s. Mortimer is like your age. Emily Mortimer. Yes, I, I, I got <laughs> you. But I don't. Think, I don't think the characters are that. Old. Anyway, the Banks kids. Years. Oh, yeah. the, the Banks kids are twenty-five She's years in her later. Late forties. 
uh, or so. She's an actress. She looks way younger. Continue. Um, uh, she, uh, the Banks kids are uh, fully grown, and uh, and he has what's his name? Michael. Michael has uh, kids of his own, uh, and uh, through a peculiar set of circumstances, his house is in jeopardy. Everything appears to be falling apart, and only one thing can save them: <laughs> the return of Mary Poppins, played by Emily Blunt, uh, and the story moves on from there. Uh, okay, I'm going to go, you're I'm less, go you're less, I'm less into it than yeah, y'all. You're less enthusiastic. I, here's the thing. I, I was not averse to the notion that this movie existed. I like a lot of these people. I like Emily Blunt. I like, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda. I like Scott Whitman and, and Mark Shaman. Um, this movie is so slavishly copying the beats of Mary Poppins that it just got frustrating for me after a while because every number it's like oh this is that this is that like this is the updated version of this is the chim chim tree this is the step in time this is the feed the birds i'm like could you just do your own thing mary poppins returns like it's been 54 years like you know establish your own ground but instead just the entire film i would look at a number and i would just think about how the other one, what what it correlates to in the first movie, and how the one in the first movie is inevitably better. Well, I, I would I would only counter that point by saying that obviously that's true. There's no question. So I think that their thought was 54 years later, we're going to slightly update these songs, but we want you to right. we want you to recall the and original to, song. To that's the point that we're going to have Richard Sherman sit in. That's right. Yeah. Music. Yeah. And, and we're we, going to have Lin Manuel Miranda do his Hamilton bit, so it makes it contemporary and different. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, so I just, I found that annoying, and then I just, I, you know, I, I never found it, like, completely charmless, but there is a, there's an artifice to this movie that I don't think the original one has that just kind of kept me constantly at arm's distance. Like, every so often I would hear a song I liked, like, I liked Can You Imagine That, I liked uh, Turtle, whatever the, the Meryl Streep number was. You know, I like the, the, the finale song, but even like the finale song, it's about balloons, and it's exactly like, let's go fly, let's go fly a kite. Um, it's different, though, because they're balloons. Exactly. And so, I don't know, I just, I, I never, I almost never felt like I could latch onto this movie as its own thing. It just, it was like watching Beatlemania. <laughs> it was like, here's the idea of Mary Poppins, again, with new people and with new songs that are laboriously trying to capture the charm of the Sherman Brothers songs, but don't. And... Yeah, I just, the whole thing kind of, I, I just kind of kept watching it miss the mark over and over and over again. And at the end of it, I was like, well, I'm glad I saw it. And I'm, I guess I'm glad it exists because, you know, it's a big, glossy musical. And we don't get enough of those, I don't think. But I just wish they didn't feel so beholden to the first Mary Poppins that they just remade it less well. It is the Star Wars The Force Awakens yeah. <laughs> of Mary Poppins movies. <laughs> it's a star killer base. It's not the Death Star. It's totally different. It's star killer base. Yeah, that's the way I felt. It's, I, I like this a lot. It, it's as close as you can get to being a remake without actually reshooting the same movie. Um, there are a couple things that kind of bug me, like the whole bicycle, like, the BMX type. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funky fresh. Yeah. Come on. But, you know, like, I loved, I really, really loved some of the songs, especially early on. I really loved the covers, not the book song. I thought that number was terrific. That was totally spectacular. I thought that was one of of my favorite numbers in the whole thing. This is the one where they're inside the animated bowl. Yeah, right. Not to be confused when they're inside the animated sidewalk bowl. No, this is inside, they go, this, this is a, I mean, Again, big dazzling musical, 
that is seamless where the live action characters are interacting with the hand-drawn animated world. That was pretty beautiful. No, I like this a lot. It's not perfect. I mean, it is, you know, I did kind of expect it was going to be very, very close to the original film. I didn't really have a problem with that, but my wife had the same reaction. You'd be like, oh, this is derivative. I'm like, derivative. That's exactly what I, I mean, it's kind of exactly what I expected, but is it breaking new ground? Not really. I, I mean, I would, I, I think, would, I, I think I would have almost preferred an, an actual remake to just have them do those original songs again and, and, and spruce it up or whatever, rather than this, the hybrid. Yeah. yeah, I I I like this idea. I, I think it I, you know, look I, I in general, I don't like uh real people interacting with uh, animated people. Why? Uh, Why is it bothering you? I don't like it. It's just not for it's not for Ben. Even like <laughs> Gene Kelly and even, Jerry Mouse. E- even Gene Kelly and Jerry Mouse. The, uh, I just uh I, I like uh I, I don't like it. It takes me out of the moment. But that said, if you're gonna do it, Really spectacular here, right? And okay. each each time it gets done. I would also like to point out that Meryl Streep is in this movie far more than she's in Mamma Mia, where she headlined the cast. <laughs> uh, That's Mama true. Mia. The second Mamma Mia, Mama Mia too. Um, so, I mean, I think that this was pretty spectacular. I mean, I was watching it with my wife, and I thought, I wish my daughter were here watching this, and that's what this is for, uh, to sort of be enjoyed please, by a family. Please show Josie the original film. She's already seen, she's already seen, okay. she's already seen the original. Um, <laughs> but I think she'll love both. I think she, and I, I mean, she might love this one more, because the, the animation is so great, and it's I so mean, seamless. It's yeah. better than the greatest show. I'll, I'll say that. Wow. But it is too soon to needlessly trash circus musicals. <laughs> draw, draw your own conclusions that Julie Andrews turned down uh, making a cameo in this but said yes to Aquaman. Um, oh, it's interesting. She voices a fish. Well, but, maybe she felt like she didn't want to step yeah. on Emily Blunt's toes. Yeah, I, right? And maybe. Emily Blunt, I got Emily Blunt. Emily Blunt is completely dazzlingly spectacular right. here. And we she's, saw she's a glim- I mean, she's got this amazing musical theater background which she does not get to use Oh, she very was often. so great in Into she the did Woods. Into the Woods. She's in Into the Woods. Which also Marshall directed also by Mar- Yeah, you're reading my mind. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Um, but I thought she is in a really tough position here because it's sure. such an iconic role and it's so closely associated with Julie Andrews. And she is simultaneously, she's straddling that line between being faithful to an iconic character that we know and love, but also finding her own way into it. It's really tough, right? Because if you do a Julie Andrews impression, everyone's saying you're doing a Julie Andrews impression. If you're not close enough to the Mary Poppins we know and love, people feel like, why are you going off these weird tangents with Mary Poppins? And she's Mary freaking Poppins. So I felt like she did a lovely job of finding that middle ground. I like what she brought to this was in a different way than Julie Andrews does, but similarly, there are a lot of times like, <laughs> she's kind of mean. Like she's coming in and it's a little like. They were they were going to a little more P.L. Travers, Mary Poppins, which is funny when you think about Saving Mr. Banks, which the whole point of the movie is, isn't it great that Disney completely took this character over and changed it? Um, But you know what you said though about having to split the difference between the familiar and the new. I think that's the challenge that the movie had as well, and they failed it. Like like when I think about like what J.J. Abrams did with Star Trek. You know, where he re- he starts it over, but also is kind of faithful to the old one and, like, threaded the needle in a way that sort of made both sides, I think, mostly happy. This movie, I think, falls too far in the, in the, in the thing of let's just do it again because if we stray too far, people will get mad. I don't know. I thought, that, well, first of all, I think that, the, you know, it's a different demand and a different audience, but I, I hear you. I just think they did it. I thought it was cool. Fair I thought it was really effective. Yeah. The, uh, and I just want to say about Emily Blunt before we conclude that, I think it's really, really bold to do this when you're somebody like 
Emily Blunt because it is a role that is forever stamped in, in sure. cinematic history as Julie Andrews's, and she didn't need to do it. Right, I mean, she's a big star, and she's good in in everything, and she, I mean, she's good in Into the Woods, great in Into the Woods, and quiet great place. in Sicario, in a quiet place, and the movie that she made that I, you know, Edge of Tomorrow, which still to me Which says, only you and I oh, like. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. She's so good. Right. And Devil Wears Prada. I mean, yeah. she is a big star, only getting bigger, full of talent, and. And and inevitably is inviting people to say, well, she's not doing it, right. <laughs> and she did it anyway. Yeah, like someone else, like some actor say, oh yeah, I'm going to play Patton. Right, that's right. Yeah, right, right. And and, and so good for her uh, for embracing and, and, it. And I think and I think Rob Marshall uh, and as, and as much of a crabby pants as I am about this movie, I did ultimately I gave it like as with Bohemian Rhapsody, I gave it the lowest possible fresh I could. Yeah, because I. I commend the effort, and I think you know people will enjoy seeing it on the big screen. I just was it just irritated me. I found it totally freaking delightful. I had no great expectations. I had no great excitement. Yeah. I saw it on the Disney lot on Thanksgiving Day. I, I made Nick go with me, and Nick insists that he hates musicals. But God then afterward, him. walking out, he was singing Triple Little Light, fantastic. So he had a good time, damn it. Um, yeah, Emily Blunt is, it's, it's like a precise performance, but it's also totally alive at the same time. And anyway, so I had a good time. I had fun. I'm saying eight. Yeah, I think I'm saying higher than that. I can't read. I think You're saying 8.3. 8.3. There we go. Mary Poppins returns. Six. Wait, as long as you hate fun. Why do you hate fun? Oh, yeah, I hate fun and musicals. That's right. Cool. You hate fun and you hate Clint Eastwood. Um, so our number is eight. But he loves fun Clint Eastwood. Yes. Bronco Jersey Boys. There you go. Yeah. So, so next, our number 7.7. 7. to the tree. It is at 77% on the tomato meter. Look at that. We're at 7. We're right there. And so I'm going to really, really quickly talk about, because none of you guys wanted to see it, I went and saw the new Lars von Trier movie, The House That Jack Built. This is a two and a half hour long Lars von Trier serial killer movie starring Matt Dillon as a serial killer. Yes. Now, is this the, is this the theatrical cut? Or the director's this cut. is the theatrical cut. Okay. I know that there was what a more graphic or a longer director's cut. Uh, yeah, apparently so. It was it was unrated. They did like a one night only kind of gimmicky screening of it around the country, and it, I think that's the version that played at Cannes. And then now there's like the R-rated edit, right? So in theaters. So in all these incarnations of it, you did not see it. I've seen none of it. Okay, no. is it because you're not a Lars von Trier fan? <sighs> I have cooled to him somewhat in recent years, although I did like um, Melancholia. Melancholia. I love Melancholia, you. yeah. Um, but other ones I'm less into. And yeah, those, it just the early the early word about this out of can was so like, it wasn't even like, oh, it's gross or oh, it's violent. It was just, oh, it's boring. <laughs> and so I just thought, I don't want to watch a two and a half hour gross, boring movie. It's really frustrating because as an artist, he can be so fascinating and so daring and there can be just a wonderful like unpredictability and a, and a texture like a richness and a texture to a lot of his imagery mm-hmm. and then he'll juxtapose that with some very stripped down low-key handheld camera work as he does in nymphomaniac mm-hmm. and like the the whole dogville trilogy sure. you know so there's a lot of fascinating stuff going on aesthetically 
but also clearly you see him working through some stuff as far as his own place in culture and how he's been regarded and how his work has been perhaps misunderstood or right. perhaps he's done done and said stupid shit and he's self-flagellating for it. I was going to say, I hear this movie is also very much about him kind of navel-gazing a bit about his own reputation or his own... Well, yeah. There's an entire section where it's like a big monologue about art, right? Mm-hmm. And while that's happening, he's intercut a montage of his own images from his own films. Oh, so great. you see like images of like the, the big climactic shot in melancholia where you see stuff from antichrist. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is really quite literally navel gazing in that <laughs> regard. Um, so Matt Dillon plays a serial killer and let me get closer. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? <laughs> I, I can totally hear you. Awesome. Okay. So um, Matt Dillon is talking to Bruno Ganz, mm-hmm. and for a long time you don't know what the context is because you hear them first, and the screen is dark, and you hear some kind of splashing noises like there's water going on, and you don't know whether he's a therapist or a priest, but Matt Dillon's character, Jack, is going through five specific incidents in which he has murdered people Mm -hmm. and he recounts them and we see them in flashback. And one of them is Uma Thurman Mm -hmm. who has a flat tire on the side of the road and he kills her. One of them is Riley Keough Mm -hmm. who is as close to a girlfriend as he actually has, but he's incredibly verbally abusive to her. And then you see increasingly he's stockpiling his bodies in this giant walk-in freezer, like this meat locker and he is arranging them in artful ways. And so it's this whole graphic meditation on the nature of art and manipulation. And anyway, if it's, it's hard to sit through. It's really hard to sit through because it's incredibly gory. Mm-hmm. But it's gory in like stripped down kind of anticlimactic ways almost there's like there's no tension there's no drama it's just you know it's it's that whole dogma aesthetic that whole like understated low-key dogma aesthetic but he's applying it to a serial killer movie i don't really know how i feel about it because it's it is way too long and it is self-indulgent but then there's a an epilogue there there are moments of individual tension within individual scenes Mm -hmm. siobhan fallon Fallon. hogan is one of his victims and um that segment is really heartbreaking and tense and sad. Nobody ever talks about her as an SNL alum who winds up like, wasn't she in the American version of funny games? Oh yeah. Like she turns up in the strangest, like art film places. Like, you know, who knew? So, um, and then there's a, there's an epilogue after the five segments, there's an epilogue Mm -hmm. and then it reveals who Bruno Ganz is Mm -hmm. and what his purpose is and where they are going in this conversation. Hmm. And it's interesting juxtaposition Casting him here compared to who he is in Wings of Desire. Uh, uh, <laughs> I think I can guess. Yes, and that segment has a tactile richness to it that reminded me of like Breaking the Waves. You know, like those interstitials and in Breaking the Waves right. where there's like great movement to it. And Melancholia has that too, where you feel like you're watching like a Van Gogh painting come to life, the thickness of the paint in Van Gogh. And you mm. feel like you feel that here as well. And um, once you realize where they are and what is happening and 
that part I liked the best. I'm really mixed on this because I kind of admire it artistically some ways. And then I'm also like, oh, fucking enough already, dude. Well, that was kind of how I felt about Nymphomaniac where I thought that there the were – The first or second part. Well, the first one I thought was pretty good. And by the second one, I was like there were moments that I thought were interesting. But I was just like, oh, God, just stop it. Right. I mean like the, the aesthetic and the structure are – and the overall point, I guess, are often quite frustrating with him. But within that structure, he'll draw some really interesting performances. Mm. Yeah, I, I really disliked um, Antichrist. But, Me too. But the actors were, you know, committed to it. Right. I always remember seeing that movie with you, and you were super pregnant. I was so pregnant. You were so sweet. You reached over and took my hand, and the, the horrible <laughs> baby accident happens at the beginning. That was the last movie I saw before I went on maternity leave, too. Whoa. But that was a, that was quite a send off to me. <laughs> um, but again, like, there's such an obviousness to the shock nature of his films quite frequently yeah. that it, it fails to achieve that shock. Yeah. That, that, I remember thinking the way about like the ending of the second part of Nymphomania. I was like, do we, do we have to do this? Like, and is that the point? I wonder is the obviousness of the brutality, the point that's beyond shock. I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know. I have, I have the same issues with, with funny games actually, <laughs> and with breaking the wave. So I, I don't entirely know how I feel about it. stuff. I just, I, it tends to annoy me, and I don't know if maybe, ha-ha, that was the point. But, you know, yeah. I just, that's where I Do you like Dancer in the Dark? No. Yeah. Because I hate any plot that can be explained with one five-minute conversation that no one is having. <laughs> and so that just drove me up the wall. It's like, just explain that you didn't steal the money. You know, like, she just sits there. And that's I, an Ebert rule. Isn't it one, is that an one Ebert of Ebert's rule. rules? <laughs> yes. So that just drove me nuts. But, you know, there were some moments to it that were nice. I mean, you know... Bjork singing my favorite things is pretty cool. Yeah. No, there's I, – I do. I, I find him frustrating and maddening, but also how many directors are working today where you can have this kind of reaction that sure, no, is so true. visceral and so divisive. Like there's something really exciting about the fuck you-ish nature of, of his output. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I, I mean he, he is one of our current sort of – this generation's provocateurs like yeah. Gaspar Noe and, you know, I would guess uh, – What's his face? Uh, Spring Breakers, uh, uh, Harmony Korean, right. you know, people like that. And so, yeah, I mean, it's good that they're out there and they're they're stirring shit up and you know trying to gauge a response. I don't. It doesn't even if it doesn't always work for me. At least they're not just like trying to make safe corporate movies. Yeah, and, and Matt Dillon, I will say, is is chilling in this. Like, mm. just there's a. The things that make him handsome also make him terrifying here. Interesting. The the angularity to his face and the intensity in his brown eyes. I, I could see him playing a kind of. Ted Bundy-ish, mm-hmm. sort of blandly attractive, devious, yeah. Yeah, and he's a different person with each character in terms of, like, manipulating them to get them in the position that he wants them to be. Anyway, um, I can't say I like it, but I <laughs> there are things I appreciate about it. I will have it, to so. catch up with it at some point. Okay, well, let me know what you think when you do okay. for posterity. So <laughs> I'm saying 4.8. Okay. It is at 60% on the tomato meter, and I feel like a lot of that is, like, qualified appreciation of Lars von Trier. As an artist, I don't know. <laughs> so let me go back real fast. We, we crammed in a ton into this very, very long episode. You guys, Ben and Matt left, and you yes. didn't even notice. They're gone now. Um, so uh, we talked about Spider-Verse. We gave it a 9.5. If Beale Street Could Talk, we give a 9. The Mule, we say 3.6. Once Upon a Deadpool, 7.3. Mary Poppins returns to a 7.7, and I'm saying 4.8 on the house that Jack built. We've got a ton more for you over the next couple of weeks because there's a weird 
release schedule. There's a bunch of stuff coming out on December 21st. Christmas is on a Tuesday. And Christmas is on a Tuesday, so there's a whole other crop of films coming out then. But over this period of time, we will eventually at some point get to Aquaman, Bumblebee, Cold War, Second Act... What else? Uh, Stan and Ollie. Stan and Ollie. Vice. Mm-hmm. Uh, Destroyer. Yeah. Uh, on the basis of sex. Yeah, a lot. A lot of the stuff that as a, the awards hopeful stuff is still out there. So we will definitely get to all of it. But thank you guys for sticking around and listening and being wonderful. And you'll see a lot or hear a lot more of us uh, very soon. Yeah, we hope you're enjoying your holiday season, and uh, we'll be back with more. And uh, we will soon have some interesting news about where all this goes next. Yay. Thank Bye. you. Bye.